Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ben Taylor of the Thinking Basketball series, primarily now on YouTube, and he's working right now on a specific, excellent, Greatest Peaks collection of videos. And so he and I talk about his criteria, the thought process behind it, and some of the lessons we've learned. He's about halfway through the release of those videos. It was a wonderful conversation about where basketball was, where it is, and where it is going, and focused on many of the greatest stars of the past because we're at uh, Dave Robinson's the most recent one released, so we're still you know still in the 90s. But an absolutely excellent conversation. I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Always, always fun to come on. And I feel like maybe it's because of the bubble or the the season starting right away. I feel like it's been about six years since we spoke. Um, so, yeah, glad to be here and hope everything's well with you. Yeah, thank you. It, it is. And hope hope the same for you. And I know that one of the, you know, one of the big pieces on your plate is the primary thing that we're going to talk about is this Greatest Peak series. I was, you know, sometimes when you have something you're really excited about, you do it right away. And then other times you want to savor it a little bit. And I had been saving this and then binged it because we were going to do mm-hmm. a podcast on it. And I, I think the place to start with talking about your Greatest Peak series is the general concept and some of the basic methodology laid out at the end of the the kind of the prelude video, which is on Bill Russell and Wilt, but just so people, so we're all starting in the same place. Yeah. So d- does that what seven episodes? You got about an hour and forty minutes of light viewing there all at once. Is that how you did it? I, I didn't do it all at once, but I did it in about two shots over the last twenty hours, which was excellent. Nice, nice. Um, I, that was I'm I'm bringing that up because that was something I started to realize. As I laid this out and I was thinking like, I kind of want to do a series like this. And when I started playing with the concept, I realized, well, if you do, even if you just do 10 players and they're 20 minutes each, that's three and a half hours of um, video and narrative and talking. And so, yeah, the introduction to that actually became really important because I had at first concepted this idea of like a three-minute introduction with kind of just the criteria you see at the end of that first episode. And it felt really, it was missing something to me. It was flat. And I realized as I started to build out the early players that I'm always going back, just like in my book, Thinking Basketball, I go back to this Will Chamberlain concept. I'm always going back to the idea of him scoring 50 points per game and that not being a perfect one-to-one mapping of offense and then the flip side at that time in the era was well you've got this defensive thing and we kind of have like no stats for that we have no way of gauging what that is they didn't even track blocks and steals back then and so a lot of the idea behind the prelude was setting the table for thinking about player value how i'm going to think about player value offense defense kind of stats that will be there 
And then the criteria to, to get full circle to your question is how do these players influence the odds that a team is going to win a championship? Um, it's a multi-year series. I didn't want to focus on just seasons because A, we have less data, we might have less film, but B, I think you're still subject to you know small sample size theater. You may only play two key teams in a postseason tournament. One of the things that I think is really fascinating about guys is the ability to adapt or handle different schemes in a seven-game series. And so I'd much rather study six critical series or seven critical series or whatever it is. So that was basically the idea and the criteria moving forward. And the last part was I didn't really have enough film to do justice to the guys before the merger. So we'll start around 1977 when the ABA and NBA merged. Well, and and the, the merger filter is also a good challenge because of just calibrating the information. I mean, you, you run into the, and, and there are people who are doing good work here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to denigrate those that do by getting there, but it is, it is comparing to something fundamentally different. And obviously there are a lot of changes from 77 to today, something that you, that you reconcile through throughout the series. And I'm sure over right. the ones that are, are to come, but getting into that, it, it kind of, it, it makes it more comparable and not, not fully comparable. There are a lot of, a lot of interesting changes. And one that I I was really struck by, and, and as you know, we you and I have talked about this in a couple different places, including on your podcast. Was I didn't grow up watching the game. I'm not a historian in the way that that many talented people in our business are, and I'm so thankful for them. And so something that came up in the Will Bill Russell one, which you've called the Prelude, is. I had thought about, you know, I, I think a lot about the modern NBA. And so for me, it's kind of mapping the modern NBA on the past. And I had I had long thought about the idea that not having a three-point line, that ratchets up the importance of having a rim-protecting big man because every shot is worth the same amount. And generally that can reduce your foul total and just, just the structure, the geometry of the court was so different. But the part of it that came up in that video that I thought was so interesting is that in that era, I lament sometimes how the like how a post up big, especially a less efficient one, gums up the works because you can't. There are a lot of things that you cannot do when when you're relying on that. It, it changes the flow of the offense. It changes everything else. But what I hadn't thought about until I was watching it with Wilt is that is so much more dramatic when there isn't a three point shot. Right. Yes. Exactly. Um, I think we're about to get to it in the series with some more big men coming up and the ability for them to play inside out and actually use a three. And this week's coming episode, which is Akeem Olajuwon, has some of this element where you're unlocking another dimension when you consider, hey, A, I'm gumming up the post, the point you just made. But B, we are also like working with double teams that are coming in from the perimeter. So if I'm kicking it back out to the perimeter and never getting three on those, I'm always getting two, what kind of ceiling does that put on those offenses without being, you know, some kind of terminator like Kareem, who um, I think, at least for the first kind of 30 or 40 years, is in a class by himself as a post a weapon or a primary post driver of your offense. And by the way, that was another reason why I kept coming back to Wilt and the idea of early Wilt, because I feel like for so many people still, if I had talked about Kareem as this unique post-scoring weapon that you can build your offense around a big man, I, a lot of people would have been like, well, what about this guy who averaged 50 points per game? And to where you started your thought, I think Wilt was an underrated and fantastic defender, 
because of the geometry of the game back then, because of his rim protection, because of his paint presence. But it's not that him scoring 50 points per game was a problem. It's that it just didn't turn up the notch on offenses like we would see later with different kinds of attacks. Yeah, and that's not to say that there is some rigid way that talented players affect and you know cultivate successful offenses that that the beauty of basketball and part of the reason it is my my favorite sport to analyze is because of that there are lots of different ways to succeed yes and there are lots of different ways to fail of course as well and with with wilt especially when you consider the lack of three-point line it's just you think about all of the uh, all of the ways like if you want to go modern the ways that teams can succeed and whether that's transition or you know cutting and ball movement and player movement and those things were a lot harder in that approach and still will doing his thing was a more efficient offense than many but not than everyone and what's interesting is it has a it has a high it has a relatively high floor compared to other options but it also has a relatively low ceiling and that that is also important when we're thinking about framing here because we're not talking about who are great players but when it's the greatest players and the greatest peaks, right. your your lens changes, your criteria changes, and then floors matter. Of course, you know, like if a, if a, if a player or the system has a low floor, that is a weakness, that is a structural problem that you have to deal with. But ceilings matter too. Yep, very well said. And I think um, this these concepts and the degree to which you are extracting value or providing value on the court matters quite a bit when we're talking about the greatest ever so a lot of each decade for me kind of had um, difficult cuts you know players that I want to make a video on but I'm already sort of stretching myself pretty thin to go (laughs) as as deep as I am and it's like oh god I really want to do this guy I really want to do that guy and one of the ones that came up um, from the commenters a lot in the 1980s was Moses Malone and it's not that I would really classify Moses Malone as a lower peak player. I am lower on him than some other people, of course. But it's not that I think of him as a low peak player. It's that when you start to look at the margins here, you say, like, is his offense actually good enough? And he has a unique kind of offense, which, you know, maybe affords its own its own commentary and video someday. But is his offense really good enough to put him in this conversation without having that great defense? And when you would compare it to maybe something like Kareem, who wasn't too far away in terms of years, that's where it falls short. And so back to your point about Wilt, it's like every every time I get to a new player in the series, now we have kind of a better foundation or barometer to say, how valuable is this scoring? Well, if I add a playmaking component, how much does that supercharge the scoring? That was a big thing for me in the 80s with Magic and then even Michael Jordan, a lot of people would say, I didn't realize Jordan was that big of a playmaker. And I had similar reactions. I did a top 10 playmakers podcast on the Thinking Basketball podcast last year, which was really fun, by the way. And Jordan was pretty comfortably in the top 10. I can't remember exactly where I had him, but a lot of people were surprised. But like, wow, I, I don't think of Jordan as an all-time level playmaker because he's not an all-time level passer. He's a good passer, but not an all-time level passer. And it gets back to this, well, he's pressuring the defense and starting to break it down and create opportunities in ways that maybe weren't even as easy in the 60s and 70s. And so now you're taking that to another dimension. Then you look at Russell and defense. It's like, okay, you can be a good defender, but how much value do you add with a great defender? And on and on and on. So yeah, I I said a lot there, but um, 
you know, the the idea is that we are at the at the all time greatest. And so kind of fleshing out the value of these things is really integral to the series. It is. And the going through it chronologically, I think, also helps tell a story that you have adeptly told before, but I think is really good in this context, which is the evolution of how the best players affected the game. And so, you know, if you want to count, if you want to count Russell and Will, you start there and then you keep on the big man train with Bill Walton and Kareem. Right. And with, with Walton, it was fascinating for me because his offense, I mean, going even back to that 21 of 22 game at UCLA, his offense has gotten a lot of attention. And I loved you calling him, and that was true of offense and defense, calling him kind of like the, the proto big fundamental because of that, that's part of how, Walton was so effective despite his, in certain ways, limited physical tools. But it was the discussion of Walton's defense that I thought was was really mm-hmm. fascinating. And the part of it, like some of, I think you were challenged, but you go into it with your eyes wide open on this, is squaring what a player is already known and appreciated for with the other ways that they help their teams win that might get less attention. And I I think it's a good thing that you spend more time and attention and maybe in some ways more attention is better on those things. Like you brought up Michael Jordan's playmaking and, and Bill Walton's defense. Yeah. I mean, that is certainly a goal to try to spotlight things that I'm seeing emerge over time, whether it's watching the player a lot, watching his team, or even just as new data over the last decade or two has emerged about these players. So spotlighting those things as a goal. And then to your other point there, shining the right. I mean, that's the really tricky part is that I want to do that in a way that doesn't necessarily obscure the other great strengths or weaknesses that the player's known for. Right. But I'm also keeping in mind like, hey, this is we, we already kind of know this particular thing. Um, what is something else that maybe isn't quite as known or uh, maybe there's a thought that set, uh, kind of cuts in the other direction and how to um, present that, I guess, in the best, best way possible without it just taking up all the air in the room. Yeah, that's a, there's still plenty of plenty of enjoyment out of seeing like a Magic Johnson pass sizzle reel. But no, right, right no, exactly. No, yeah. no knock in that, in that whatsoever. And with with Walton, he also occupies such a such a unique place within this conversation because his impact on basketball outside of his peak is still very pronounced, but his NBA impact on the court outside of that peak is actually somewhat limited. I mean, you could talk about the the Celtic stuff notwithstanding. Like, that is an entirely different Bill Walton than the Walton that comes up in the Greatest Peaks conversation. And so I think that in some ways for me, despite, you know, being a UCLA alum and everything else, but not being a basketball historian— there, there's like you, you could argue that as it like kind of as a project, there's a higher v- value add there because even though Breaks of the Game is such a seminal book and all these other things, like it is, it is still a an, a misunderstood and hard to fully contextualize part of NBA history. Yeah, I really wanted to be able to actually see on film more 1976 Portland with the coaching change. So Jack Ramsey comes in in 1977 and you get Blazer Mania. But I mean, there was a a not so um, unknown coach there before him named Lenny Wilkins. And it was by all written accounts and by all statistical accounts, it was a different thing. It was a different monster. So it's the kind of thing where I mean, this is how I ended up with like pushing the envelope for me right at 1977 as a starting point. You want to go back and 
un- unpack and kind of contextualize all these things that happen. And I'll add that when you do it with fresh eyes, even I mean, I've done historical projects before, but even getting a couple years of space, watching more current games, refining my process in terms of how I evaluate these things and then going back. It's it's really interesting you kind of always end up slightly higher, slightly lower or seeing a new thing um, than you did the last time you looked at it. We can go a little bit to his I, I don't know how we're going to do the, the Kareem. I was going to make a nice Kareem Bill Walton's segue, <laughs> and then I just completely nuked it. But something that I found fascinating, there are a couple different players where we can have this discussion. And with Kareem, part of it is dictated by the by the framing of it, you know, being post-merger and everything else. But I think a lot about the dominance of, of Bucks Kareem and, and early the, those teams mm. with Oscar and everything else. And his, you know, and remember, this is a peaks, not a career or anything else, but seeing the you know the lakers the lakers kareem those the, those years in in this was was welcome too and and the honest you know evaluation of of what makes his offensive game great and the limitations of the thing maybe the thing i enjoyed the most in the kareem video was explaining some of his limitations you know that he didn't have those same kind of the 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 movement and the instincts weren't quite the same and he gave that little bit of space hmm. yeah that that actually brings up another interesting thing that I I don't think it matters who I include or exclude as you kind of jump from one great to the next. And I think about these guys as having, you know, superpowers like different Marvel characters or something. You you inevitably come from one video about a big man like Walton and then you go to the next big man and it's Kareem and you see the okay all right so with Walton I was just watching a guy who is super active and super aware and has these kind of um, high antenna reflexes and then Kareem's strengths on defense and they are considerable are very different he doesn't have that same kind of activity but he's he's just like a praying mantis out there I mean he is I, I actually think Kareem's size is historically understated because we've become so accustomed um, even even I think in your era of fandom but certainly when I was growing up to thinking of a guy who's like six ten and a half in shoes as being a seven footer and then Kareem's probably like seven two barefoot. Yeah. But they don't list they don't list them at seven four. Um although there was one Bucks game that I've seen, I think it was against the Knicks in the early seventies, and Keith Jackson is calling the game and he does refer to Kareem as seven foot five and this is when he had his hair out. And I was just thinking of like, you know, the old WWE days where, you know, what would Kareem, Kareem would be like seven foot eight, 300 pounds in, in WWE. And um, he certainly was in a time where big men, if anything, were underestimating their height. Walton has the exact same thing. If you look at Walton, he's giant. And everywhere you go, he's listed at 6'11". Yeah, absolutely crazy. And I, the something that comes up in, in Kareem's and also uh, to, to great effect in Larry Bird's is the idea of counters. And I think that that, and, and MJ's and, and a lot of other ones too, but like what a player develops to be able to take advantage of what other, what opponents are anticipating. And so in Kareem's that could be, you know, like using, using the, using the left foot, going to, going to a fadeaway, going to all the, going to everything else. And for Larry Bird, that was just throwing a bunch of fakes up in the air and just seeing what people, what people <laughs> buy on. And 
that is such a definitive trait of the absolute best players where, one, you have to have something that's so good that opponents are playing to it. You know, like that. that is an important part of this. But two, it is having the physical skill and the wherewithal to have something else so that when you take advantage of that, and that can be even be like, the, the, it was funny, I, the, you had a clip, I think that was in Walton's, or might have been birds of it was like a basically a pass to a cutter when they thought they were going to go the other way and they cracked cracked me up because Draymond Green and Steph Curry did basically that exact same read a couple of days ago when I was watching it and it's like you take advantage take advantage of the the existential threat to create what is actually a greater threat for an easy basket right yeah I mean certainly I think the ability to have counters at a high level um, can be huge or certainly is huge for most players. I think what's interesting and something we'll we'll get to in the next couple episodes that are coming up is and Kareem had this, what if you have a nuclear weapon? You know, what if you have like one thing that sure people would overplay the hook, so he needed to develop something just to kind of balance it out. But the reality of Kareem's game and and it turns out I, I'm pretty sure he's going to be the shortest video in the series is just because that hook is that valuable. That hook is the single most unstoppable weapon, and he just spammed it over and over and over. And so back to what you said about different ways to skin the cat, one of the beauties of basketball is you can be really successful with a lot of diversity, or you can be really successful with a singular thing that is extremely difficult to take away, and everything in between is just balancing those forces as you look at players, and probably teams as well. You could probably apply the same principle. Yeah, and it's that that balance and that leverage that really that really pushes players and teams and I like that you mentioned both of them over the edge because if you have that second thing and like you could go to like one of the extremes of the you know the the modern warriors teams or some of the best you know some of the best spurs teams or the Miami I mean my, Miami was hard because like Wade and LeBron didn't have their best times together but it's it, that's where you really start to get into the transcendent territory and um I was I was excited about the Larry Bird one because again he's somebody who's a little bit before kind of even the time that I've gone back and the what blew me away like I, I knew I knew about Bird's passing but not only that his outlet passing was that good but throwing consistently accurate one-handed outlets maybe that's just like my experience throwing a basketball and I know all those guys their hands are are bigger than mine but. It seems like, you know, the two-handed, Wes Unseld, Kevin Love. I mean, Jokic does both, but that's because Jokic is a monster. Um, To be able to throw those as on point in terms of velocity and angle, one-handed was just gobsmacking for me. It's it's funny because I think the idea of throwing them is so absurd and incredible. Bird, to me, is like the most absurd, still unique player ever. So as you go through these things he does on the court, a lot of the times it's about the idea. And yet you're bringing up something which I didn't even really get into, which is their their accuracy. You know, he, he's thinking, OK, I, I'm as the ball goes through the hoop, where are the pieces? Can I hit over the top here? And then to your point, I mean, I don't remember seeing him, certainly not this time around studying him, but even last time I went through history, I don't remember seeing him really miss those kinds of passes. Some of them might be broken up because they're tight plays and, you know, from quarterback parts, he's off by six inches from dropping it in the bucket or something. It might be tipped. But to what you're saying, I mean, he just grabs the ball and hurls it 80 feet pretty accurately. And it's the kind of thing that we 
don't even necessarily think about. And uh, we can go there if you want now, but I think it also opens up all doors of conversation about what we mean when we talk about athleticism, because so many people think of Bird as this, you know, really, really poor athlete. But to me, it's more like he has certain athletic qualities that are poor relative to what you see in typical NBA players. But he also has athletic qualities that are off the charts, like his reflexes. Yeah, reflexes, reaction, and something that is not athleticism, but you see it with Bird in particular, which is instincts and like like evaluation. And so like something you got into kind of comparing Bird and Magic that I thought was was fascinating was in in terms of how that reaction affected them defensively. And so Bird mm, was yep. able to occupy space differently he was able to be more disruptive albeit in a different in, in a different way and I, I thought that was really interesting because you see and you see this with players in kind of both directions you can see players who understand the movement and actions defensively but then can't really do it offensively maybe that's because they don't have the tools in the toolbox their handle isn't tight enough or their you know their jump shot isn't quite there but but to see and I mean and you see this sometimes with really adept passers because they understand like where the ball should be going and so that's like oh well I should just go there um and the difference let's say between Larry Bird in those situations where it's where like I mean and some of this is you choosing clips and everything else but Bird was Bird was anticipating more and Jordan just such an unbelievable athlete it didn't matter whether he necessarily fully anticipated or anticipated as fast as Bird because he could just get there more than Larry Bird could yeah yeah I mean he was a tornado on defense and I think that's something that is probably relevant for all scouting all up-and-coming players modern players certainly um, as we try to gauge their defensive value or things like that there's a difference between having a different reaction time or a different level of anticipation and when you arrive to make a play um, in other words you have each unique player's combination of when they read it when they see it when they react and then their speed and quickness their kind of acceleration and then the length of their arms and so when we watch film sometimes we can conflate those things right we can see a guy who's slower arriving but he actually may have better anticipation or reaction time if that makes sense yeah it, it absolutely does and with bird i mean it, it it's also an appreciation for me of understanding that no one is a perfect player and so with bird you know the some of the challenges finishing around the rim because he just didn't have the burst to get over and through opponents and so he had to develop all these other things around it and you see that with all with all sorts of players and you have i mean we haven't had many we haven't really had any small guys yet in the video series and and there won't be a ton of them period but that the skill set that you develop because you can't do the other things is just a it's a fascinating through line in certain circumstances but not all these because some people are just Wilt Chamberlain right yeah 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 I actually I didn't realize it's I don't think it's something I was completely oblivious to but I just didn't realize how often he was adjusting or struggling or still using craft at the rim until this passed through and then once you kind of notice it as you're watching one of my practices is once i notice something as i go to new games and new scouts i see how you know prevalent that is um, because one of the hardest goals of the video is i want to present what i see proportionally to how often i see it um, or certainly proportional to how big of a factor i think it is as i'm watching games so one of my challenges is if you happen to watch a series against a team 
where one thing sticks out because it's a weakness. Let's say you watch Bird in 1988, which is after the um, scope of his video here. But in 1988, his foot speed's a problem. He's got injuries in the playoffs. And at the end of some of those playoffs, he was getting really burned off the dribble. It's like if you watch that and you watched a couple of those games, if you weren't careful, you would think, oh, the thing I need to talk about extensively with Bird is how often he's beat off the dribble. And instead, what I noticed uh, going over and over and over from games in 85, 86, 84, 87, around that kind of core period where his peak is, is it's like, yeah, his foot speed isn't great, but that actually isn't as big of a thing as we would think of it as as we would today because we get back into that whole packed paint, lack of a three-point line. They didn't really start using the three-pointer until the end of the 80s. And so it's a weakness, but to spend too much time on it would feel disproportional to how often it seems to come up as I'm watching the game. And it's an important point to bring up that, you know, the advent of the three-point line is not the same as the full integration the, and use the of the three-point yeah, three right, right, right. line. And some of that comes up in Bird's video just in terms of him being a wonderful shooter, but also not taking that many. It was, you know, it was about four per game, right? Um, it was, I mean, at his peak at the end, I mean, in the in the earlier part of the 80s, it was almost non-existent. It was like one or two. And then um, it, let me let me look it up since we have an Internet in in the heart of his career. It was three in the regular season. And then one thing that was interesting to me is he's a little lower in the playoffs during those years. And so that's how you end up getting into a, a small little part of the video where you're after that. I looked at how he performed against good defenses and weaker defenses. And that, that's kind of how that's the video process to me is this. Oh, why is there a difference all of a sudden between him ramping up his threes as the 80s goes? But then in the playoffs, they're still not kind of ramped up. And then you start going back through your film and you start seeing how he gets the shots and things like that. So um, he, he used it, but certainly not the way I think we would today. Yeah, and that gets – so it brings up a, a fascinating challenge, and I think I think you handled it well, but it is something that peop, you know that makes the greatest of all time arguments so difficult is the idea of transporting a player you know into a different area. You evaluate players relative to their contemporaries and the rules with which they in, in which they played, and part of the reason to do that is because that's what we have the data for. You know, we, we yeah. it's, it, instead of it being a thought experiment and an argument that can't have a resolution, at least we can evaluate in this context. And something that I thought about a lot watching these in quick succession with the lens of the modern NBA is some of these preternatural like instinct players like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. But one of the benefits that they had that prevented them from being as exposed defensively was that they had to cover a lot less ground. And I think that right. is that is the element that sometimes gets lost the most defensively in the NBA right now is the amount of agility and and pure just effort it takes to succeed on that end. And sure, players that good don't need to take on the largest defensive burden. Also, these decentralized, in many cases, offenses mean that that one-on-one -on -one defender isn't as important. But that also means that everybody has to do their job. And so would Larry Bird have been able to defend two guys at once and kind of bridge the gaps if the gaps themselves were larger because the players were further apart? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad now that you've brought up that I evaluate relative to the era because I'm realizing I forgot to say that when you asked me off the top because it, it's, it's a really important component. Um, the players can only do 
what they think is best in the system they're playing in. I mean, I think that applies to just about any endeavor in life. The the example I always use is if, uh, you know, a four point shot comes along in the future and every kid under the sun just as table stakes has a great four point shot from 29 feet. Would you go back and say Michael Jordan isn't very good at basketball? Um, there might be philosophical reasons why you might want to think less of someone like Michael Jordan if that were the case where outside shooting just becomes that much of a premium. But to evaluate what he did in his time. I mean, he's he or anyone, Bird and Magic included, are trying to develop their skills to succeed in the game based on the rules and the characteristics of the game. And so to me, we can play time machine games. I don't like them, but we can talk about how skills might translate with some degree of reasonability. We can look at other philosophical things like influence. But a huge focus of mine is just trying to understand because it's still fuzzy. It's still hard in basketball to really try to understand how was this guy successful in his time? Um, If you look at someone like Walton, what was driving what seems to be his massive impact in Portland? Um, Certainly it has something to do with the system or the fit or whatever it may be. But what about the skills he has that make that fit possible? I mean, I've, I've heard many discussions about how if you flipped Walton and Kareem, both of their teams would be worse in those systems. And I think that's true. And it doesn't really say much of anything negative about either player at all. And so back to Bird and Magic, with Bird, when we watch him on tape defensively, I think there's such an instinct to get worried about the the foot speed and the movement and being taken off the dribble. And yet, when you watch the Celtics, they were really good defensive teams throughout like the first six, seven, eight years of his career. And I think he started to lose it right around the the cutoff in the video. Um, But certainly 1984, 85, 86, like the things he was doing as a team defender, kind of hopping around the lane, anticipating things. And he wasn't a great rim protector, but just being there at 6'9 made plays. And when you're watching and you keep seeing that over and over and over again, that's the thing to me that that actually matters in terms of value within their era. And that's part of the reason why I kind of have that focus. An element that is sort of in kind of both camps of it's not quite time machine, but also is an abstraction that I think is valuable is, I mean, scalability is a little bit different, but it's also the the idea of, well, what could they have done in different circumstances of their same era? So you brought up mm, the yeah. idea that that Kareem and, and Walton were were on teams both from a roster perspective and you could argue from a, and from a scheme perspective that were that were tailored to their specific strengths and ideally to avoid some of their weaknesses. Well, yeah, it took a little while with Kareem, but yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, this comes up actually in the David Robinson video, the most recent one that has been released. Of it is entirely possible that because we only get the sample of this player in that circumstance. Now you could argue in certain circumstances you could like you could go into like international play or college or some of these other things. But it is interesting, even though it is a thought experiment in most circumstances. There are a few exceptions to think about how it would have been different if they if they at that time had been able to play with somebody who did X. Mm, yes. Like so, in in, in Robinson's case, it's like a, a pick and roll, like a, a a pick and roll point guard that could have opened up some of his, that could have maybe exacerbated some of his greater strengths and minimized yeah. some of those weaknesses. Yeah, um, this is such a great great topic to bring up, and to me, uh, as I think is 
clear in in the videos that we've hit so far and will be as we keep going forward is I do think there are very strong signals for how certain on-court skills could be amplified or in some cases protected or minimized, as you just said. And to me, that's not a mystery. You're actually looking at what happens on the court and you're just saying, well, what if you could do that all the time? Because if you take Avery Johnson, not a not a great point guard um, by by relative standards, he ended up having a productive career from kind of nowhere. Um, but if you look at his overall package, when Avery Johnson throws a nice little pick and roll pocket pass or some of the lob passes you see in the video and he got better at throwing those, I thought, in the mid 90s as his role increased. Uh, to me, it seems strange to say we can't imagine what would happen if we had a point guard that could do that all the time versus just Avery at like 5'9 or 5'10 or whatever. Um, and then also someone who didn't get the reps until later in his career. He can't do it all the time. So we have to somehow act like we don't know if David Robinson would benefit from that, if that makes sense, right? That's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, and I, I think that's good. You you posited in the, the Michael Jordan section about how, you know, like what would have happened to his legacy if Scottie Pippen had not emerged and, and or, I mean, you could go into the triangle and some of the other the other elements of it. And MJ is, I brought this up with Kareem before, but MJ, because his career occurred entirely within this window, is a fascinating question for the greatest peaks because you chose a peak that is before he started winning championships. And it, it's laid out well in the video, and I think people should go into it, but should should watch that if they're if they're interested in it. But how, how like basically walk us through how that how that worked for you as you're kind of you've you've solidified the criteria and the the kind of the areas that you want to focus. Then how did you end up on that being what you wanted to talk about for Jordan? I feel like the peak chooses me, Danny. I don't <laughs> choose the peak. Um, that is a that is a wonderful deflection, if nothing else. No, no, it, it is in it is in many ways the answer because I I obviously have some familiarity with these players. I mean, I grew up watching Jordan's career kind of from around that time. Um, and if anything, I had a bias toward the years that I started to get hooked on basketball, which is the first Bulls three-peat championship seasons. And I think it's only in saying, okay, here's this window from 1988, in his case, 1988 to 1993, where you can look at his peak seasons. Um, as an aside, I love second three-peat Jordan. I just don't think he has, there's just too many limitations physically relative to first three-peat Jordan for that to really be on the table for this series. So you're looking in 88 to 93 in his case. Now, as you watch those games, and you've got data as well, right? But as you watch those games, to me, it becomes very difficult to defend saying something like he's better in 1993 than 1990 when he's slower or has lost a little bit of that fastball on his um, vertical game at the rim or his first step. And his motor is, a I mean, he's naturally, his motor is a little less than what it was. And so even if his defense is kind of in the same ballpark, you can't get quite the same thing. And I think what ends up happening with certain players, I alluded to this earlier, is Jordan in 93. Not only did he go out on top with the first retirement and the legacy that just expl it was exploding at that point in time anyway, but then it just exploded after he retired and then returned. But when you go back and you go to basketball reference, or if you're a fan who remembered this series, he torched the Phoenix Suns, yeah, av averaging like 40, over 40 points per game in that series. And so certainly for me, for most of my life, 
I had this impression of like, okay, this is a guy at the absolute peak of his powers just demonstrating mastery on the court. When I go back and watch that series, I see some problematic defense from the Phoenix Suns, to put it lightly, right? So it's more of, and you can see this in all kinds of players historically, to me that's more of a great single series matchup. He also has a serious problem against the Knicks earlier in those playoffs, has one of his weaker playoff series ever. And then I start comparing that to film in 1990, film in 1989, whatever. And to me, it's just, oh, I don't think he would have struggled this much against the Knicks because they couldn't have contained his penetration to the same degree, things like that. Last piece with someone like Jordan is balancing defense and passing. Well, I think his defense was at its peak in 1988 when he won Defensive Player of the Year. He was just a terror there. But when it comes to something like his shot selection, which is an issue with him and his passing, I think he really starts to smooth that out, certainly in the Phil Jackson years. But even in 1989, Doug Collins starts playing him at point guard at the end of the season. And I just think that experience and everything that he has, the way he played in the Detroit series in 89... To me, that's why I say that they choose the peak chooses me. I don't choose the peak. At that point, I'm left with how can I how can I honestly say that what I've seen in 1993 would be better than what I'm seeing in 1990? And also, I think that part of what makes the argument even stronger, you get into this in the video, is value to a team. Now, there's arguments I remember. I'm reading fan graphs. I was going back to some of the formative stuff for me on this was, you know, in terms of that the value of a win changes as you get higher. And there's there's some really interesting arguments there. But those Bulls teams, the early ones, needed Jordan more. And so thus, he was providing more value to them because nobody else could do it. And he was not only scoring at this immense volume and defending at a very high level, but also, as we talked about a little bit earlier, creating good shots for teammates. Now, he wasn't doing it in the same way that Magic was or Larry Bird was or anything else, but he the attention that he drew by virtue of that insanely efficient scoring yep. was creating opportunities for teammates. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. It's, it's fo- focusing in on what makes a player successful and thinking about their superpower that, to me, drives these kinds of decisions where a couple years later, you know, if in 1990 that's like a 10, it's, it's an 8 or a 9 in 1993, it's understandable that you could smoke a team like Phoenix in the postseason, but line line it up against the Knicks and the Pistons and things like that, and you're not necessarily going to have the same success. This also connects to a really interesting point going back to what we were saying about David Robinson, which is, to me, you can see certain skills that would, quote unquote, fit with better players. What would happen if you had a guy that could alleviate Jordan's defensive burden like Scottie Pippen? Well, we got to see it. But we never got to see what would happen if Jordan played with a post player who wanted the ball 20 times a game or another kind of huge score. Pippen Pippen had a game and a mentality that was not capable of ramping up to 25 or 30 points per game. And so these physical things to me are things that I think we can gain insight with. But the mental ones, which I will bring up with certain players, including this week with Akeem, those are things that are more mysteries to me where I, I don't I don't know how we answer questions about if you're in a new team with a new coach and a new general manager and ex-teammate and his personality and his skill set, would you acquiesce? Would you play a certain kind of role differently? Would you buy into defense more than offense? These are the more mysterious things to me going through these kinds of exercises versus like, yeah, David Robinson, if you can't see that he has some downhill lob potential, uh, I, I don't know how to kind of move forward from that. 
Before we end here, let's talk a little bit about Magic Johnson. And Magic's passing has always been something that I've appreciated. And you talked a lot about the velocity of his passes. And there were times when that might have been, let's call it disadvantageous. Too, but too mu- a little too much. A little, a little too much. Yeah. A little bit Brett Farvey, let's say. Um, but <laughs> but that velocity also creates a lot of opportunities. And the, the angles and the windows were truly incredible for Magic. But something that I really enjoyed... In the video, and I think it's also a a good thing to think about with some of the more modern primary ball handlers, is the benefits that you gain. I mean, first of all, it's it seems to me to be way easier to have great passing vision when you're just taller. I mean, you can look at how many of the yep. great passers in NBA history are not point guard height. But the other big benefit that you get in those circumstances is, I would say in some ways it's it's reverse defensive versatility, but it's basically the idea that if they're that much bigger, you don't have to put them in tough defensive situations. And so you get into this interesting challenge that I'm sure was was difficult for you in the series, which is Magic and, to an extent, I mean, Michael was a better defender, obviously, but then some of the players that are to come are, you know, like they don't have the same defensive burden that somebody like Bill Walton or Kareem or Bill Russell had. But at the same point, they didn't ha- they didn't have to that wasn't the the place where they derived their value. And so I I was really interested in that from Magic's perspective. It's I don't want to get into the whole point guard not point guard. I I have a firm stance in this that is different than most people in our business on what one how those terms should be classified, but that's that's a discussion we can have another time. But it is notable that you have all these wonderful passers that create a benefit of them not having to guard those players on another team, even if that player's the same height, because somebody else can just do it. Yeah, so I, th- I think what you're getting at is Magic. Magic is listed as the one, um, I think, in our world, we think of him as the primary creator in the offense. He's the quarterback of the offense. They they very much had a heliocentric system with him. But then on defense, he's guarding threes and fours a lot just because of that height. And a concept that I've talked about way in the past, I haven't in a while, his defensive usage is low. Yes. Because, because you can kind of, for lack of a better word, you can kind of just hide guys in places where okay if he's a problem at least it won't be that big of a problem and i and i if that's where you're going i do think that is a kind of a core concept that still exists today which is as a now some people it may be impossible like trey young at this point it may be impossible just as an extreme example he's so small and the game is so spaced out but there are many players that have problems on defense and they are not going to hurt you in an extreme way defensively because of this idea you're getting at. Yeah. And and so I don't know exactly how to like how to square that. I don't know. You you probably have a better idea of how to fit it into this conversation, but it was something that I appreciated while watching everything else that Magic did so well and also the transition that Magic had from being the Showtime transition dynamo to more of a half court force, but partially be due to the players that the Lakers had around him and just due to the circumstance. Yeah. Well well said. Okay, we. I mean, I'm sure we could go on this for a lot longer, but A, you have more video to create and edit, so I want to, I want to keep that there. But I'll, I'll open the floor to you before we go. Is there anything else, like, of the ones that we've had so far, or just anything else that you that you want to discuss even briefly? Or, like, I'll phrase it a different way. Is there something else that really intrigued you or surprised you in, what you've, in what, what's been out so far? Ooh, um, I think the maybe the only thing is just sort of how frequently Jordan played that high-risk style on defense. 
um, which is, I know, been the, the, the subject of, of much debate from people in reactions. But I mean, that's the challenge. You keep watching more games and it keeps happening uh, and it feels kind of, um, you know, not just to leave out the, the proportionality of that happening. But that's probably the only big thing. I mean, the only other thing I'll, I'll say is um, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the, the feedback and the response, which has been so amazing and at times overwhelming and um, super excited for sort of the second half ish. I think I, I'm not sure we're at actually at the halfway point as we record this, but uh, you know, as we get more into the modern guys now that we're in the mid nineties and, and moving forward into more spaced out three point errors, I'm, I'm very excited for that. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it too. And thank you so much for taking time to come on. Uh, pleasure as always. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Ben Taylor for taking the time to come on. You absolutely should watch the Greatest Peak series and really everything Ben does on the Thinking Basketball YouTube feed. You can also check out backpicks.com, can check out his excellent Patreon, and if you haven't read it yet, his book, also called Thinking Basketball. Love having him on. You can also follow Ben on Twitter at E-L-G-E-E, the number 35, and... It's funny, we, I, I told him beforehand, I'm like, I don't think we really need a roadmap for this conversation. I think we'll find it. And we absolutely did. And watching the videos in rapid succession right before, because I had been saving them, but to go through it in quick succession, I actually think that was a fun way to do it. There's no really right or wrong way. It's just kind of know yourself. But the juxtaposition in certain circumstances, especially when the sequencing is players who play the same position, I thought that was particularly enjoyable. And just seeing how great players' roles change over time is fascinating and love talking about it with Ben. I fully support, I fully encourage you to support his work. And if you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really wherever you get it. Also, leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player for choosing. And word of mouth, if it was a specific episode or the show in general, if you think other people like it and might not know about it, that is much appreciated. And there are still people finding it that this show has been around for a long time, but that still happens. So really do appreciate it. Also, of course, I have a ton of other work out there. Written work is at The Athletic. Just finished up my extension series um, with the in-season players that came out over the weekend, and now I'm working on a big 2021 project that should release maybe end of this week, beginning of next. I don't know exactly what the timeline is going to be. I haven't finished it yet, so it hasn't gone through editorial. And then Dunked On, still one day a week free. That's generally going to be the 15th and 16th public. And then we do Dunked On Prime, which is the other four times a week, and we can release more flexibly. So for example, we did a special one on Steph Curry's 62 point performance and it's a really fun format to be able to use. We're doing a subscriber mailbag that will be coming out later on Wednesday. Also the League Pass NBA cast. Nate and I are doing one game a week through League Pass Digital and it is an absolute blast. It will be on Mondays and we just did Warriors Kings and this coming week it will be Sixers Hawks which is a very exciting one and so you can check that out uh, if you're a League Pass subscriber. It's League Pass Digital um, but you should be able to when you know what game we're doing it should be one of the ways that you can watch which is absolutely fantastic and we're honored to to have this opportunity. If you have any feedback on the show good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com 
is the way to convey that to me. Twitter is too ephemeral. And if you send it there, I will definitely see it. That is the, that is my promise. I will read it. Um, I try to reply. I don't always. It can get a little bit difficult sometimes. But I always do read it. That's something I do every day. It's one of my kind of one of my tasks, I guess you could say. And, of course, Real Jam Radio will be back next week. I do not yet have a guest lined up, but I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. And thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, take care, and make it a great day. Thank you.